For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in, like, you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking, I might feel some pain at some point. But with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. Welcome to Crooked Conversations. I'm John Favreau. Today we are asking the question, can we have Medicare for all? Uh, to help us answer this, I'm joined by two experts in the field, Dr. Adam Gaffney, a single-payer advocate and critical care physician who's an instructor at Harvard Medical School, and my friend Andy Slavitt, who ran the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services during the Obama administration and now runs the United States of Care, a new nonprofit focused on expanding health care to all Americans. Gentlemen, thank you for joining. Uh, I want to start with the substance of the single-payer debate, and then we can move on to the politics. Um, Adam, you recently wrote a piece for Descent Magazine titled Single Payer or Bust, where you argue that single payer is the only way to achieve, achieve uh, truly universal health care. Uh, why do you think that is? And could you lay out for us how such a system would work? Absolutely. Um, so, you know, there's broad agreement that we need universal coverage, that we shouldn't have uninsured people in this country. And I know all of us believe in that and certainly a, a strong majority of the country. Um, and you know, traditionally, the way to get there has been to create a public program uh, that covered the whole country and that you know, if you want to cover everyone, you cover everyone publicly. Um, there have been some alternative approaches. But the idea of single payer is very similar to the idea of Medicare, the idea of a what used to be called national health insurance. And so this is a public insurance plan um, that covers the entire country, um, that leaves no one out, and that replaces existing forms of coverage, so things like private health insurance. Uh, this kind of proposal goes back a long way. Um, Truman proposed national health insurance uh, after World War II. Um, it was prominent again um, after the passage of Medicare. Many thought that Medicare could be transitioned into a fully universal program. And we're having that discussion again again today in the wake of the Affordable Care Act. Um, so how would it work? Um, I mean, we can talk about the, the, the finer details, but it's pretty simple, actually. Uh, you take a program like Medicare, expand it to everyone, but then improve upon it because absolutely Medicare is not good enough in its current form. Um, and the reason why I say that single payer is really the only way to make truly universal health care or the kind of universal health care that I think this country needs is that it's not just about eliminating uninsurance, 28 million uninsured. We want to get rid of that, but it's about doing more than that. It's about getting rid of underinsurance, about eliminating copayments and deductibles that deter people from going to the doctor or going to the hospital for, or filling a prescription. But it's also about establishing a level playing field so that some people aren't relegated to inferior tiers where... Um, they can't access the same doctors or the same hospitals. Uh, there are certain insurance plans that exclude um, prominent academic medical centers. In some states, Medicaid, and Medicaid's a great program, don't get me wrong. In some states, um, it doesn't give the same level of access as private insurance. So what we need is to get rid of uninsurance, to get rid of underinsurance by getting rid of copays and deductibles, to establish an equitable playing field where everyone has a has the same good high level of access and to do all of that affordably. And in my opinion, 
there's no real way to accomplish those three goals, save money, and not break the bank all at the same time. And that's where I think single payer comes in. Andy, if we could uh, figure out the politics and the financing of single payer, and I realize those are two gigantic ifs, um, do you agree that such a system could work as well as Adam says it could? Yeah, well, well, first of all, I would just start with agreeing with Adam that uh, we have to end the, the desperation and mild panic that we keep the public in with all of the uncertainty. And Adam is right. Even when people have insurance, oftentimes uh, that doesn't end because they fear that they'll lose it if something changes, if they're sick. Uh, so we, we do need to, to do something significantly different. And I think we are uh, probably closer than we have been to uh, being able to visualize the kind of transformational change that, that Adam's talking about. Now, as you know, uh, if it were easy, as, as our boss used, as your boss used to say, and then, then my boss, President Obama, used to say, if it were easy, you know, it happened already. And that's because I think designing a new healthcare system, in many ways, it's more like city planning than it is sort of picking out a set of drapes. There's a lot of decisions involved, you know, who gets covered, how much is covered, what is covered, is it cover mental health, can you, should you cover dental, is it, do you cover transportation to the doctor, um, what portion should an individual pay, if any, how much should you pay hospitals and doctors, and, and many more, should, should there be private sector, should they play a role, if they have profits, should they be regulated, and any one of those decisions um, can uh, tip off, can, can make the entire thing um, go wrong or not work. And there are plenty of unintended consequences. So I think the good news, John uh, and Adam, is we have uh, the opportunity to test Adam's proposition and other propositions over the next few years in states while we wait for a new federal government, which we all have to work for. And and then I think we can we can uh, we can make sure that we figure out the things that work and the things that need to be adjusted. Adam, what do you, what do you see as sort of the biggest challenges out of uh, what Andy was just talking about in terms of sort of making all of these decisions about you know exactly what gets covered? Um, the for-profit system, et cetera. What, what do you see as some of the biggest challenges there? Truthfully, I think the biggest challenge is political, and I know we're putting that off for the time being. Um, you know, I, I think the question of, of uh, what gets covered under single payer often comes up. And the truth is we're not really, you know, this isn't a totally new problem, right? Medicare exists today. And it's already making these decisions. It's already deciding what gets covered and what it doesn't. And is it perfect? It is a perfect um, system? No. It you know I'm sure there's some things that people would want covered and that aren't. But for the most part, people view it as a pretty fair system. Um, obviously, all of the big things are going to be have to be covered. You know, you need to cover hospital care. You need to cover doctor care. You need to cover mental health care. You need to cover prescription drugs. In my opinion, we should definitely cover dental care too. Um, you know, our mouths are part of our bodies. I don't never understood why that always gets sliced out as its own <laughs> funny, um, you know, sector. Like, it'd be really weird if we didn't cover kidneys, you know, or something like arbitrary like that. I put teeth in the same category. Um, so, yes, I'm not going to pretend like this is going to be easy and it's not going to be a, a fight. Um, but what I think we should say is that we can afford in this country, given we're, that we're spending 18% of the U.S. economy on health care, we can afford comprehensive benefits for everybody. 
Um, and we know we can do that because other countries sort of basically do it already and spend less than us. So we can spend a little more than them or significantly more than them and cover everything even more. But the big challenges are political um, and not so much um, a policy in, in my mind, at least. Well, can I ask you both? I think we can all agree that one of the big um, challenges with the Affordable Care Act is, you know, when it was designed, um, one of the ideas was we're not just going to cover more people, we're going to try to bring down the cost of health care. And clearly it made some advances in that direction, but obviously not enough. Um, what what about single payer or Medicare for all would sort of help solve the underlying problem of rising costs in the healthcare system? So uh, let me take this is Andy, and I'll take a I'll take a first uh, a crack at that. The, the the things that most plague us from a cost standpoint um, are some of them uh, are right in front of our face, and it's just a matter of having the political will to deal with them. So unit the unit cost of prescription drugs would be a great example. Um, you know, we live in a country today which is one of the only ones in the world uh, where we don't in some way uh, regulate the prices of prescription drugs so that consumers can afford them. And I'm not talking about big new cures. I'm talking about things like hypertension medicine and things like um, uh, insulin, uh, things that people really depend upon. The second one's a bit trickier, uh, and that's uh, that's the the cost of hospital care. And the reason it's tricky, and I think this is this both as a policy angle and a political angle to it, is rural hospitals are the biggest employer in most small towns today. It's actually not coal mines uh, in West Virginia. It's actually hospitals and it's nurses. Um, and so if we're going to take a bite out of, of those costs in, in rural communities, the, the thing we're going to wrestle with is how much are we going to reimburse these small hospitals? Because if small hospitals close, go out of business, employment goes down, you're going to have a big, not just economic problem, but a huge political problem because the, that's where a lot of the support is going to need to come from. And so you're going to have to find that level which you pay them um, enough to stay in business uh, and to prosper and to provide good care and for people to want to continue to work in those communities and have doctors come to those communities um, and continue to not uh, to, to deal with the employment issue. Uh, but but manage the cost of care, and I think those are the kinds of issues that you know United States of Care feels like we got to dive into those. We can't just leave those to chance. Yeah, Adam, what do you think about this? Because I do think one of the big challenges is the transition from a private, uh, or at least it's a hybrid healthcare system where you have some private insurance, some public insurance, to a completely private insurance, a public insurance system. And you know, how do you manage the transition from a, a standpoint of you know? for-profit hospitals, the insurance industry, like, you know, all of us can agree we don't need insurance executives to be making so much money and getting all these profits, right? And you know, hospital executives too. But when you get down to it, what do you do about all the jobs that sort of um, depend on the system as it is right now? Well, there's a lot wrapped up in that question. Um, you know, from the perspective of healthcare. We're not going to need less health jobs, healthcare jobs in terms of people caring for people. If mm -hmm. anything, we're going to need more. Um, you know, 28 million people are under uninsured now, over 40 million underinsured. Uh, people are going to need probably more care, not less. So I'm not worried about, you know, reducing the number of um, caretakers and providers of healthcare. 
Um, now, in terms of what Andy was saying about rural hospitals and, and, and you know, how do we deal with that, there are real issues. If you were to suddenly transition to some system where you just cut funding of hospitals by 50%, um, they would go under, um, or many would. And that's not a way That's not a way to reform the healthcare system. What you want to focus on um, is where can you save money without actually detracting from actual healthcare. So I think Andy pointed at one of them, which is prescription drug prices. Um, if we negotiate with drug companies similar to other uh, high-income nations, um, you, you could probably bring down brand name drug prices by about 50%. That would yield over $100 billion a year in savings. That's money that can go towards the kind of expansion of care I'm talking about. Um, But there's another area that often gets neglected in these discussions about costs, um, and that is what we waste on administrative billing coding activities. And this is something I see as a provider. I always have. Every doctor has um, dealing with insurance companies, dealing with billing, dealing with coding. Um, 25% of all hospital revenue goes towards administration in this country. It is half that in Canada or Scotland. So that is a big area of waste that we currently have that is a result of a multi-insurer system where you know every patient has to have their bill constructed and tabulated and itemized and then charged to different biller to different insurers and then there's fighting and wrangling and so on and so forth. And for patients, people are dealing with bills all the time and wasting God knows how much time fighting with insurers and this and that. So there's a huge amount of waste. Now, is that going to reduce jobs of billers, coders, and administrators? Yes. And we're going to need to come up with those specific programs to retrain those folks and transition them into other industries and support their salaries. But so, but it's not all healthcare jobs that are going to be lost. Providers will, we're going to need just as much healthcare, we're just going to need less administration. Crooked Conversations is brought to you by Bespoke Post. Mm. Bespoke Post. If you love exploring new products and brands, and you but, know, and boy howdy, and boy do, do I, I like a boy good do, brand, boy howdy, boy howdy, but don't have the time to scour the internet looking for them, you have to check out Bespoke Post. I'm going to slowly, uh, almost imperceptibly, uh, become uh, kind of one of those southern lawyers from the movies. Okay, Bespoke Post is a subscription club that offers monthly themed boxes curated from unique and upcoming brands around the world. They have a wide variety of box themes: style, grooming, cooking, drinking, travel. They cover all the bases. There are no commitments. They tell you what box you're assigned on the first e- each month. Assigned? That's funny. That's uh, funny. On the first of each month, and you have five days to keep it, switch it, or skip it. Visit BespokePost.com and answer a few short questions that will help them gauge your interests and get a feel for the boxes that'll vibe with your style. Mm. Get a box that vibes with your style. That's you're too important. busy. You're too busy. Or you've been running all over hell's half acre. That's how busy you are. Now I'm looking up southern phrases. <laughs> From barware to apparel, <laughs> grooming supplies to outdoor essentials, Bespoke Post has something unique for everyone. You're I got busier the... than a cat covering crap on a marble floor. I'm busier than a one-legged man in a butt-kicking contest. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's a Robert, That's a Robert favorite. Gibbs. Oh. Yeah. I thought it was a Biden thing. Each subscription box goes for only 45 bucks, with more than $70 worth of goods inside. I got a great... It's on here. It's on here. As busy as a one-legged cat in a sandbox. Hmm. <laughs> a strange twist on it. <laughs> this is what Bespoke Post wanted in there. Yeah, John, what were you saying about Busier that? Busier than a moth in a mitten. Uh, <laughs> I like that one. I'm going to use it. I got the barware set, and it was a great cocktail thing. Oh, yeah. wait, I got one. I may, I may, you can make martinis with it. I I've got told the story before. <laughs> Telling it again. It's Just letting like everybody it. know that it's um, sweltering in the studio, and so we're a bit punchy. A bit punchy. 
Anyway, to receive 20% off your first subscription box, go to bespokepost.com and enter promo code CONVOS at checkout. That's 20% off your first box, bespokepost.com, B-E-S-P-O-K-E, post.com, promo code CONVOS. Themed boxes for guys that give a damn. Like us. Like us. Crooked Conversations is brought to you by Everlane. Everlane, John, Mm -hmm. look to your left. At me. Yes. Do you see the t-shirt I'm wearing? Is that, is that an Everlane t-shirt? Are you, gonna, are you telling me that's an Everlane t-shirt? John, this t-shirt is an Everlane t-shirt. <laughs> wow. It looks fantastic. Product placement. I really like it. In fact, I had an option between several t-shirts to put on was before today. Was one shirt, uh, a shirt that was $50, even though you knew it only cost $7 to make? Who would oh wear that kind goodness, of crap? Oh my goodness, I believe it was. But the point is, I had two shirts... And I was like, what shirt should I wear today? And I thought, hey, we're doing a live stream. Mm. You know? You gotta look good. Gotta look good, even though I'm gonna look like a sweaty monster because it's 130 degrees in here. But that's neither here nor there. <laughs> Everlane only makes premium essentials for men and women <laughs> using the finest materials without traditional markups. And they tell you their real costs, so you know you're never overpaying. What's the cost of air conditioning, huh? <laughs> Everlane yeah. wants you to know what you're paying for and why they're radically transparent about every step in their process from the materials they use to the ethical factories they work with. Because Everlane sells directly to you, their prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers. Everlane's clothes look better, cost less, and last longer. You might say they last for Everlane. Essentials like their Cotton Crew t-shirt are exactly what they should be. Simple, stylish, and made from quality materials. I think that's what you have. Check out the Cashmere Crew, the 100% human tee made of 100% pure human. Again. Or the Twill Weekender bag. Everlane's timeless essentials are just what you're looking for. No frills, just quality. See why Angelina Jolie, The Today Show, and NPR all love Everlane. It's an eclectic group of endorsements. Huh. And us. That's everlane.com slash crooked convos. But they're paying us. Ever- <laughs> you don't know what kind of spawn con Angelina Jolie is doing. <laughs> everlane.com slash crooked convos. She's got a lot of kids to clothe. <laughs> <laughs> Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Uh, so let's talk about the politics. And Andy, I want to start with uh, the United States of Care. You launched this organization a few months ago with a bipartisan group of advisors, everyone from Bill Frist to uh, Medicare for All Advocates, which I count myself as one. Um, why did you launch this group? Why did you want to make it bipartisan? And what do you make of all the criticism from a lot of folks on the left who said, you know, United States of Care is trying to derail single payer? Yeah. Well, look, I think first and first of all, um, United States of Care, I think, views themselves as one of the critical components, but, but not necessarily the essential component to getting everybody in the country health care. I think you, know, you lived through it uh, when the ACA passed. And I think if you can picture coming back sometime in the 2020s and attempting to pass something, whether it's single payer uh, or Medi- Medicare for All, or or some amended form. I know there are there are plenty of other ideas out there, and there will be more, including 
Medicare for All Plus, and, and all of them have the pros and cons. It's going to take really three things, I think. It's going to take, number one, um, you know, a, a, a framework of a vision, which, which people like Adam and others uh, are going to drive the dialogue on. And I think we can cr- contribute to that by, by prompting new ideas and, and so forth. But I think th- those are going to come. Second is you, you need a small volunteer army. I mean, particularly these days, uh, we're going to need people all over the country who are turning their uh, desires for health care uh, into political wins. And uh, to do that, we, we can't just be talking to ourselves. We need to win over people um, who, believe it or not, there are Republicans and independents and people who are not affiliated politically or are fed up with the health care system who really want the guarantee of health care. And so we, we have to approach them with people that they can relate to and can get in a room with uh, and so forth. And so, you know, I think, you know, I, have, I, I personally believe, and not everybody agrees with me, that we should be able to get in a room and listen to people, particularly now that we have, you know, three or four years uh, at least before we're going to have real major action. And, and the third reason, the third thing you need uh, in order to get major legislation done is you need kind of a boiler room operation of kind of policy, polling, stakeholder management, people to deal with all the kinds of issues that we've already even been wrestling with uh, in this discussion. How do you find that right reimbursement level for hospitals if they're going to make a transition so that they, uh, that they don't close, so that people can get care? And that's where I think, you know, we are really hoping to spike and contribute to the, to the dialogue, bringing in the experts and the people that can do the polling and do the analysis and work at the political level, both state level and the federal level. So um, I think that uh, United States of Care uh, is eager to be a big part of the solution, uh, but it's going to take a lot of other forces. Adam, you voiced some some of the more respectful criticism I saw of United States of Care early on. Um, what was sort of the basis of that criticism? And, and now that a few months have passed, do you have the same concerns? You know, I think a couple of my thoughts, I mean, I, and some of this is... Some of my criticism was rhetorical. I mean, I think, you know, speaking uh, – and I understand the marketing behind this, the idea of speaking about health care is not a political thing. But there's just nothing more political than health care intrinsically. You know, we're talking about 18 percent of the U.S. economy. We're talking about taking on big interests. Um, we're talking about, you know, billion dollars of profits at stake. So I'd, it's going to be a big political fight. And I think we all agree on that. Now, I will say I agree with a point, this Andy's second point, that even though I have very little hope that the GOP will contribute substanti- in any useful way uh, to the next healthcare um, fight, and I'd be happy to be proven wrong on that, I am very open to the fact that people of all political backgrounds, citizens and, or, and, and people who live in this country, um, might very well get behind the kinds of things we're talking about. You know, polling shows bipartisan support. And I'm not talking about Congress. I'm talking about, you know, pe- everyday people uh, mm. for things like Medicare, for things like Medicaid, even single payer. You'd be surprised at the kind of polling it gets, um, definitely among independents, but even um, among Republicans, um, a, you know, a, a, a substantial minority usually voices support for single payer. Um, so we're going to need a big grassroots um, movement to make this happen. We're going up against huge, powerful interests. Um, I'm not against achieving incremental steps that help people in the meanwhile. I've never been against that. Uh, we should expand Medicaid in all in all 50 states. I think we're all on the same page on that. But I don't think there's a way to go about this that is not um, 
explicitly political. Yeah, Andy, I, I guess my, my understanding of United States of Care when you guys first launched was that, you know, there's not, we're not going to have a chance at something like Medicare for All at least until 2020, right? Um, from now until 2020, um, there may be opportunities to improve the healthcare system, um, perhaps on a bipartisan basis in some places, or perhaps just with Democratic votes in other places. Um, I know particularly you're focused on uh, what's happening in states. Where do you see, I mean, I know you don't believe that, you know, a bunch of Republicans are suddenly going to say, yeah, sure, we're for Medicare for all. <laughs> but where do you see um, opportunities? What parts of the healthcare system do you see opportunities to actually get things done between now and, you know, hopefully when, when Democrats uh, return to power? You, you, you and I both, John, and, and many, many other people spent a, a large part of the last year um, trying to prevent uh, the repeal of the ACA and, and, and having us uh, go backward. And, and at some part during the year, uh, I started calling people and saying to them, uh, let's put this debate behind us mentally and let's spend a minute thinking about the next healthcare debate. Because sure as our clock goes around the dial, Every decade or so, we will have this debate about how to get a better, fairer healthcare system. And what should we be doing now to set ourselves up to be, to be successful then? What are the building blocks we should start to build, even as we're fighting this current fight? And it wasn't until after it felt like this fight was over, um, at, at least as of, as of last year, to defeat repeal, that felt like we need to start to launch a positive effort to build to what we want. And um, and essentially, uh, I wanted to create a, uh, ask a lot of experts to create a blank slate and say, if we could raise a whole bunch of money and spend it to get everybody universal coverage, how would we spend it and what would we do? And what would be the ideas that, that came in? And I think a few things I think that uh, – and, and that's it. That's really the charge. And mm -hmm. it's really a fun charge because I think we're working on positive things. We're working directly with people. And, you know, we have states – uh, today that reach have reached out to us and said that they want to have a Medicaid uh, option uh, for everybody in the state. We've had states that have reached out to us, and uh, like New Jersey, uh, who want to have a, uh, a revamp program for children's health care to, co to cover all the gaps. There's a lot of focus on mental health, um, and so I, I don't and I don't just view this as interim activity. Yes, there's incremental gains to be made for people, but what, what we also need, John, and you remember this is we need to do things that we can score four or five years from now that the CBO can put a score on and say, this works, this is how to score it. Otherwise, we'll never have federal policy that's evidence-based. We'll, we'll just have something that a think tank came up with that's never been tested. And while I think that's a good place to start, I think we've got the opportunity to put some of these things in motion. Washington has got a single-payer uh, uh, issue that they're trying to get on to their to their ballot initiative. California is trying as well. So, you know, our our goal, our hope is to uh, be able to support these efforts, number one. Number two, do almost an anthropological level of, of listening to people and understanding them and polling to understand the kind of questions and trade-offs people will face and what will cause them to act at the ballot box in ways uh, that they haven't before. We've seen major initiatives fall apart. They've fallen apart for a variety of reasons. A lot of them is because people have gotten scared by the other side. So we want to help understand that. And then finally, we want to invest in new ideas. You know, I believe that, that the components of what we'll have, as you say, in the 2020s will consist of things we haven't even thought of yet. 
Uh, and, and and I think that's where you know we are really hopeful about our work. We're only in this a couple of months, so um, we're going to learn a lot, but we're excited. Uh, let's talk about financing a little bit. Adam, what, what do you think about um, the different financing options for Medicare for All? Um, obviously, you know, some of this, as Andy mentioned, some of the states that have tried this, that have tried, that have tried to go down the path of Medicare for All or tried to pass some legislation, sort of have run into funding issues or at least uh, run into opposition from the other side over funding issues. Um, what, are, what are sort of your, you know, uh, funding options of choice? You know, um, it's it's a difficult question. I think, first of all, I just want to point out that Medicare for All is harder to do on a state level than it is on a federal level, especially for mm-hmm. small states, okay, uh, which are experiencing sort of cross-border, um, you know, care, people coming in for care, people going other places for care. It, it It is a harder nut to crack on the state level, again, particularly for smaller states. Um, in terms of how do we finance healthcare, well, there's a couple things to point out. First, we already... Two-thirds of all current healthcare spending is already coming from public sources, is already tax-financed. So we're going to take that two-thirds of, uh, that's going into Medicare, that's going into Medicaid, that's being spent on in, you know federal employees' healthcare, state employees' healthcare, county employees' healthcare. We're going to take all of that money, which accounts for two-thirds of all healthcare spending, and put it into the Medicare for All system. Um, so then how do we fund that last third? Um, there's a couple of options, you know, and... The reality is you could go a couple different ways with this. Uh, my personal thought is we're going to need a mixture of taxes because uh, it is still a big ticket. Um, one thing is a premium is, is a payroll tax. That will basically replace what employee what employers are currently spending on health care. So instead of spend, buying, pre, buying plans for you, they're paying into a payroll tax. Uh, in addition to that, I think we'll need some, some other taxes. Um, you know, the current we – we don't have an economic analysis right now of, of the bills in the House or the bills in the Senate. It. We will eventually. We're probably going to have a few different ways to fund it. Um, but I think for the for the vast majority of Americans who are already paying huge amounts in premiums, already paying a lot in copays, already paying a lot in deductibles, um, they're going to see their costs go down. A and B, they're not going to have to deal with this on a you know case by case basis. Every time they need to go to the doctor, think about how am I going to have money for this. Every time they fill a prescription, think about it. It's going to come out of either pay, some combination of payroll and of income taxes. And I think that will be a huge benefit both for people who are going to spend less overall. And even for people who are going to spend overall the same, it's going to be a big improvement in quality of life. Um, and last question for both of you to think about. Um, obviously, right now at the outset, there is, if you, if you poll single payer, if you poll Medicare for all, um, there's, as, as you mentioned, Adam, there's huge support for this. There's majority support and, and there's support even in, in unlikely places, you know, in red states and among independents and even some Republicans. Um, you know, as, as we learned um, through when we went through the Affordable Care Act uh, process at the outset, too, there was all this public support for you know more insurance for lower costs for for you know expansion of public insurance and then once we got into the fight and the opposition suddenly funneled you know millions and millions of dollars into all their scary television ads and they have their whole conservative media establishment and they start telling people it 's a government takeover and you 're going to be taxed so much. And you're going to lose your doctor and you're going to lose your plan. And they they have all their scare tactics. Um, It becomes a tougher fight and the polling changes a little bit. So what have I guess from for Andy, what have you learned from the Affordable Care Act fight for the next for the next battle? 
And then Adam, you know, how do you, what do you think about dealing with the opposition once we're in this fight? Yeah, so I think there's two issues. I think there's issues of substance, two types of issues. There's issues of substance. Um, making, uh, asking someone to go through a transition. You, you know, the, the, the lesson of Hillary Care, uh, and, and Adam actually tweeted about this today. The, the lesson of Hillary Care was um, people are, are happy to have coverage for all. They're happy to have a new system. But if you ask them to accept some uncertainty in the process, um, even if you have a logical case that that uncertainty um, could be better for them, um, it creates an obstacle. And that obstacle then creates an opening for the opposition. So that needs to be understood. That needs to be studied. Uh, people need to be listened to. I don't think, I don't think this is uh, a matter of let's figure out how to persuade people. I think it's a matter of, of uh, we have the, let's invest the time to go listen to people and understand um, what, the, what, those, what those real issues are and come up with real policy solutions and test them. And, and I think, you know, don't go, don't go try to shortcut it and just go right through it. Se- secondly is, um, I think, John, as you, as you point out, there becomes a whole lot of misinformation um, as, you get, as you get into this. And I think at this point, you can sort of anticipate um, those kinds of concerns. Here's the advantage, I think, that we'll have uh, going for us, those of us that are trying to expand coverage for more people is I think the thing that maybe changed the game more than anything else over the over the last year was I think the Republicans made a horrible, horrible political mistake. I can't think of a worse thing to have to run on and stand for than we want to take your health care away and make you feel more insecure. And they did that to the country. You know, there are moms in the country who have sick children who uh, will not rest until we uh, answer this question once and for all. They've woken up a lot of people. And I think you know, with uh, with uh, the as we all know, the thing that motivates people as much as anything else is fear and fear of loss. And I think when when that fear of loss becomes as great as it is, and let's be honest, the 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 minute the Republicans have the ability to take care for more people, the minute they have the ability to charge sick people more money, the minute they have the ability to force people uh, who've lost their jobs to lose their health care, they're going to do it. I mean, let's be very clear-eyed about that. Right now, that's the that's what we have. And I think in the face of that, that's going to turn a whole lot of energy in the right direction. And we need to figure out how to use that. Adam? This would be my answer. Um you're going to face opposition and smears and made-up facts, no matter what you propose. You could propose some tiny tweak, and they're going to you know, claim that you're trying to interject death panels into this, and even yeah. if these death panels are completely invented out of whole cloth. The way you win it is by making a clear case for a simple plan that will benefit nearly everyone. So the, that is the inherent beauty of Medicare for All as a political project and as a policy project. What we're saying is very simple. Everybody in the country gets covered with comprehensive benefits, without copayments or deductibles, and they can never lose that insurance. They have it from when they're born. They have it till they die. And if you make that case, it's simple. It's clear. Almost everyone will benefit. Even those who are currently insured gain something. Even those who are not insured definitely gain something. Um, And that is how you win this. Yes, there's going to be opposition. Yes, there's going to be smears. Yes, there's going to be all sorts of misinformation coming from the right-wing media. But as you said, John, we have the public support. Poll after poll after poll is showing majority support. So I really do think that this is the time that we coalesce behind a winning progressive 
policy platform so that when we do have power, we're not going back to the drawing board. When it is 2020 or whatever it is, that we have a government in place that's willing to make progressive policy, that we're all on the same side. And we say, we have this proposal. We have a platform. Let's now make it law. And I think that's the winning strategy. Andy and Adam, thank you so much for for joining me and for doing this. Thank you also for all the work that both of you are doing to advocate for universal health care. And I'm glad we could do this. It's always far more productive uh, to have a nice conversation uh, over the phone like this as opposed to um, Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, so thank thank you both again and uh, and and take care. See you both on Twitter soon. (laughs) (laughs) Bye, guys. Take care. Thank you, John. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because I got the charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed.